0: This podcast is presented by Rabbi parrots Muchkin speaking to the millennial generation. Well, welcome to the Rabbi Parrots podcast we're recording.
1: Okay, Rabbi, well, I couldn't be happier. It's it's fun because, you know, one thing it's a it's a real, uh, you know, bahaia that uh, you know you're turning 40 and and you know, considering where I am, uh, you know, you're you're a young man with everything in front of you, and that's just wonderful. And you have to have that opportunity and potential and energy, and you've got it all. So,
0: I'm so glad to participate. Thank you. I uh, I'll, I'll just tell you why I decided to do this project. Um, there is a a line. It's an ancient line. It goes way back into the Medrash, and where it talks about that. At 40 years old is when you can really understand your rabbi. You can't really understand the wisdom until you're 40. But in, in Ethics of Our Father, it says that the they have like a saying for each age, and it says your 40s are for Bina. So there's something about our ability to integrate information starting at the age 40, both from the masters before us and uh, and in our life. That that Judaism seems to be saying over the years. So I thought, like, well, what does that mean for me personally? I'm turning 40. Well, in the world, oftentimes 40 is like, oh, you're not young anymore. You're an alta cocker now. And I'm like, (laughs) and I'm like, in Judaism, they're like, it's the opposite. At 40, they're like, no, that's where integration really begins. That's really where like the joy of like taking wisdom and really, you know. Cultivated it with experience and and life. You have you have bina, which is where wisdom really gets integrated into your being. So uh, I'm choosing that approach because that's definitely more exciting. That I know that I could take my wisdom and and what I learned from others and really integrate it into my life.
1: Well, let me just uh, okay. That's uh, for me, of course. The forty. Well, you know the other very common saying in Judaism is that uh, at 40, 40 is when you're ready to study the zohar right mm. the kabbalah finally you can get to the sod right the sod part of the part of the pardes uh, you you you're ready for for the study of mess of the mysticism and 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 the secret uh, of uh, of spirituality but but to me and that's my personal feeling for you is that the 40 represents those 40 years that it took the Israelites <laughs> to get there, to get to the promised land, right? Yeah. You 40 is is not only the end of a, per- a period like wandering in the desert, but it really also is the beginning of a new era of, of working in the in the prom finally getting to the promised land. And uh, unlike Moses, you made it.
0: <laughs> well, well, uh, it's a nice compliment. I will say that the saying of "Don't learn Zohar till you're 40 um, I think had a lot to do with um, with learning on your own, but you were always allowed to learn from another uh, Kabbalah master mysticism. like there was no age limit on that. Right. Um, and I grew up learning mysticism as a subject from very early on. Uh, you know, so so much so that my dad used to learn with me when I was six or seven. Uh, at five to six in the morning, we would learn mysticism, and I didn't really understand. But you know, that's how he was able to convey a lot of his convictions through that studying. So it was a special moment. Um, yeah, listen, you're you're you uh, you're a fascinating person. We've already chronicled some of that on the last podcast we did. We did a podcast uh, in the first time uh, periods of COVID, and I got a lot of good feedback about your idea that this was our um, meeting with history. It was a. Uh, it was a. Uh, it was very well put for a lot of people. It contextualized the experience of COVID. Uh, what other uh, new things have maybe come to you since since uh, since we recorded in the last couple of years? What other ideas you think have have come through your experience and wisdom that you could share with us about like how you see where things move forward?
1: Well, as you know, I see things through the lens of my own personal history, like most people, like all people do. And but, but my own personal history happens to um, touch on or or be affected by directly by uh, you know some of the major events, particularly involving um, us Jews, uh, such as the Holocaust and and the post Holocaust period, including the creation for the first time in two thousand years of an independent Jewish country, and the trials and tribulations of of that, uh, of that moment in history. Um, and where we are now, of course, we sort of uh, been purified, if you you know, in a kind of a kabbalistic sense, been purified by the by by the pandemic, <laughs> in, a, in a way. Wow, you know, it's been it's whatever it's done. It's shaken, shaken us up uh, in in a, in a way that may or may not be, yeah, you know, somehow. What should I say? Positive. I don't like to use that term positive because nothing is positive or negative. It's usually something, you know, wax wa- waning and waxing in between. Mm. Um, I think that um many things uh, have been permanently affected uh, by this pandemic, and particularly the role of work, uh, you know, how how we approach work. So now more and more we'll be wor- mixing um. Two separate spheres of our life, which used to be work and then home issues and and taking care of the family. and uh, those those two those two things will no longer be separate. Marriages will be affected because both Abel, often both parents are going to be sitting there working at their at their laptops, you know, and uh, right there. And, um, and and then even deeper things, deep, deeper uh, impacts, and I'm not even talking about the obvious uh, you know things that everybody talks about, the social media and, <clears throat> and the impact of technology uh, of this uh, technology on, on the ability of young children to develop relationships because now they don't even speak to each other. they text all the time. Um, there are all these different issues that are ongoing. But beyond that, I think for us Jews in particular, there's gonna be a, a trying time because uh, in America, as you know, anti-Semitism is rising. That's an obvious thing to see, but um, but you always have to ask the question, why? What is driving this? And what is usually driving such things as, as anti-Semitism is a coming crisis in the larger society. And people feel that insecurity, that that fear, that uh, anxiety about the the, the the future, the crisis that's coming, and they automatically want to um, sort of rationalize that, rationalize the world um, by pointing out whose fault it is. You know, trying to find a scapegoat. And the Jews have whatever else they've done is throughout, two, you know, at least two thousand years of history, and probably even before they they've always assumed the role of, of scapegoat. And so now you're beginning to see uh, a, a kind of process where it's okay to blame the Jews um, f- from both sides of the spectrum, both from the, of course, from the traditional right, which always was fascist and anti-Semitic, exclusion, exclusionist, now other words, excluding the Jews from society. Um, but now more and more in the liberal left, because, um, you know, there are all kinds of reasons I don't want to get into it, but it's too complicated, not complicated, but it would take too much time. But, uh, but you can see how uh, the Jews are now becoming attractive through the, you know, kind of excuse of anti-Zionism uh, and, you know, sort of making, making Israel again a pariah state a state that requires recognition that they won't get, them trying to delegitimize it by calling it apartheid and so on. And this is all coming from the left. So the one thing that the left and the right seem to agree on is their common um, need to blame the Jews. And that's that's my speech right now. You ask me, uh, what, what have I got to contribute? That's the latest concern that I have, that all of these And that's only one symptom. I'm looking as a physician. I look at these things in terms of diagnosis and treatment. And in terms of diagnosis, as I said, these are deeper deeper manifestations of a disorder that may or may not be coming uh, very soon. um, But it is there. And I think it will slowly but surely um, will uh, create... Uh, issues major, major challenges to the whole idea of democracy and and underlying ways of of ensuring equality for everyone and justice for everyone. Uh, And at the same time, and as Micah the Prophet said, you know, all there is to being a Jew, but that also means all there is to being a mensch is to Um, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly by the side of the Lord. And my point here is that there is no mercy without justice. That's the deeper meaning, I think, of why justice precedes mercy in that saying, because we all love mercy, and it's very easy, and Shakespeare wrote this famous speech, you know, about mercy dropping from heaven, you know, gentle rain and all that. But, but basically, there is no such thing as mercy without justice. Otherwise, either everything is chaos and everything is permitted. And that is the challenge here, how to be merciful and, and, and empathetic and at the same time um, have some sort of semblance of justice still operating in, in your country, in your, in, in your state. So that's that's my long speech, much longer than I expected.
0: <laughs> but but these are these are you know, there's a lot of I mean, these are very um I think the way they land on someone like myself or younger people is is in a very confused state because we don't have the the firsthand experience most often with uh direct anti-Semitism. We have, you know um, you know, by proxy of news outlets and social media. So, and and until something really hits your own self, it's very hard to, you know, um, take it as serious. And 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 uh, so there's that issue. And the second issue is, is that there's a um, a general uh, uh, confusion in 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 uh, in the secular Jewish community on what anti-Semitism is. What is it really? Like, is it on me? Like, well, who am I? I'm a regular person. It's when you struggle to see yourself fully as a Jew, it also struggles to land uh, what's happening. so so that it's one of the reasons why I actually don't focus a lot on on podcasts. This may be my first podcast really discussing anti-Semitism because it's not something that ever I ever felt like there was something for me to really contribute. Um, I, would, I will say that I have very early memories of personal anti Semitism, so it is very real. Um, and yet, no matter what I faced growing up in Brooklyn, of somebody calling me a Jew and throwing me off my bike or something challenging like that, paled in comparison to the first time I went to Europe, I was, uh, when the first time I went to, I'm sorry, not Europe, the Baltic countries, I was in Lithuania when I was 16. And I was on a corner trying to find my way and a group of bikers stopped and it was like i don't know 10 12 bikers and they all stopped their bikes and raised their hands and said hail hitler to me and and there was a fear that w- went right through my system that i had never felt before at all it was like all the stories of of uh, of of yesteryear showing up in my life but overall, I, I have not. I, for me, I just generally, instead of antisemitism, I interpret it merely as violence or criminal activity. Like I, I try to, I don't see it directly as anti as antisemitism. I, I don't mind admitting over here that it doesn't keep me up at night. Antisemitism, maybe it should, but 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 you know, it just doesn't. It doesn't hit me the same way, and I, it's, it's part. It could be because of my lack of experience oh. with it.
1: I think you're American. You're just through and through American, whatever that means, and you're in your way of expressing that. But um, part of being American, and what it struck me when I first came to the well Canada, which is you know the same thing, North North America. Um, it, what struck me is how everybody was feeling safe. And 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 even though sure there there are shootings and you know even now in the synagogues you know all that everybody's preparing for the worst, um, there is this underlying sense of structure that there there is a structure in which everybody fits and and uh, other than the usual accidents that one gets into or or you know occasionally there's some crime. Um, for the fundamental sense of being in America is a one of feeling safe, of feel, feeling fundamentally optimistic about the future. About, yes. You know, if you apply yourself and work hard, you know, you'll succeed and you'll, you'll get there. You know, the American dream. But at that is also starting to get a little shaky because those structures that allowed the Americans to be so secure within their own world I think that that's what's being challenged that's what's under under I mean I'm not even I didn't mention one of the most obvious aspects which is what's happening with the black community and and the challenges to white privilege and and woke uh, woke and I don't even know if you know what I'm talking about but all of these things in a way um, put the Jews as sort of the as usual the, go, the in between the in-between uh, target, if you will, um, where uh, you know the you know like like last a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, Whoopi Goldberg confused the Holocaust with uh, sure it wasn't anything to do with race, and then right that it was all about race because right you know and and so uh, um, uh, when you get all mixed up with this current discussion about race and about the role of race as slavery and so on in American history and the rewriting of American history. And all of this is challenging people uh, at their core, at that moment, at that place where they feel safe. And now the things are beginning to shake. And I sense that because I've been through these kinds of processes before. Of course, in my case, it led to the most extreme... Manifestation, which was the, the murder of six million Jews, right? In and in, in effect, in effect, the, the destruction of Jewish life in Europe. I do not believe there is a viable chance for Jewish life to continue to exist in Europe. That was achieved by the Nazis,
0: right? In well, the- I, I I will say I will I will say that that uh, specifically with with these issues, like I really, I mean. Maybe I'm in denial, but I don't believe there's going to be a Holocaust on American shores. Uh, you know, I, I, I have I don't have the DNA to believe that. And thus, like, like, that's why I oh. there is Israel. That's why that, that that's what's changed
1: the equation. There was an escape mechanism. You, you know, uh, there was one country that you can always go to. And and it's your it's your country of of sanctuary, or right. That's the reason for Jews in particular to 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 feel that it's not going to be a Holocaust because there is a way out. That that's secondly, I don't claim that there will be ever a Holocaust here. In other words, they will not point fingers at the Jews to the extent of saying, uh, "This is all their fault. The plague is their fault." you've heard that you know sure. that that's one of the conspiracy theories that are they're going on right now and uh all over the social media that the jews are to be blamed for for COVID 19 uh which is exactly what they said about the black plague in the 14th century and yeah exactly and 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 it's kind of it's 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 uh what shall i say it's it's mind-boggling that uh, the same particular pattern of conspiracy theories um, for the same kind of things, which is a plague, an infection, an epidemic, um, the Jews are being blamed. Seven hundred years later,
0: is well, I amazing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I think it feels to me fringe. I, I would say more that. I'm of the side that whenever these this thing comes up in this way, I have to strengthen my own self. Like, like ultimately, the stronger, just like if my immune system's strong, I can tolerate more of a virus. The same thing with my spirituality, my sense of Jewishness, my sense of being and and community and family. The stronger I create those units, the more I can tolerate what's happening. And more importantly, I could probably be in position to uh, more than survive, but to handle the difficulties that come my way. So
1: you're the same with me and the people I come from. I mean, we have this amazing sense of identity. And, you know, when somebody pointed at us in Poland and said, dirty Jew, I was in total agreement because wow. it wasn't him, which was a guy who, you know, whose ancestors were climbing trees and, and picking fleas out of their armpits and eating them while my ancestors were inventing God. <laughs> so I I'm I am very happy to be singled out in a place like Poland, which is where I come from, uh, to be called whatever name, but as long as I'm a Jew, I know exactly what I am. But here, there's uh, and people like you are trying to restore and to promote that very sense of identity among young people, especially, uh, you know, the 30 somethings, the 20 somethings that you did in San Francisco. I don't know what you're doing now,
0: but I'm- more of the more of this, more of the same good stuff.
1: Yes, exactly. So. You, there's if if there's
0: did let me ask you a, a,
1: a time when the jews have to leave like they did in spain for example uh in 1492 yeah america was discovered um you know uh, i don't think it will come to that but um but the, the, the direction the road is taking the, the the first steps you know the they say in chinese that uh, the uh, the journey of a thousand miles is determined by the first step. Yep. We're more than the first step into that into that journey. And and you, as a as a, what would you call it? A, 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 a dati or a haredi, or whatever, whatever term you want to use, um, know that there is a higher rate of attacks on Orthodox Jews than, yes. than other kinds of Jews. You know that.
0: Yes. Very much. Just back home, back home in Brooklyn, it's, it's almost without a day that uh, something doesn't come out right now.
1: Exactly my point. You're making my point. So right there, because those are recognizable as Jews, and they don't fl- they don't flinch from doing that. They're exposing themselves every single day. They have a fantastic identity as Jews. Nothing can shake that.
0: Somebody once uh told me that uh you religious Jews you're just virtue signaling with your garb and your righteousness and I said it's not virtue signaling if you get signaled out and and uh and yelled at or hit. So uh you know it definitely doesn't feel that way that you're getting a backlash for that. Um you know, you when when you grew up in Poland, you know, that was still a time where Jews weren't allowed in universities. And even if they were, they were they struggled in their careers. And that lasted somewhat out of the Holocaust. But you you've gotten your you you have a, you have, uh, you know, Ph.D. And you've been a professor and you've been a teacher, a lecturer and a doctor and a physician and a, and a, and a practitioner uh, over all these years. Um, how uh, professionally in your career. How has your Judaism, you know, enhanced or been affected, or like, like, how does that, how did that fit into your, to your over over your lifetime?
1: Well, first of all, oh, just the the most important and significant impact has been on my children. I, you know, we always, Libby and I, have made it very clear to the young, to our children, daughter and son. Um, that they who they were, you know, the, this identity thing, you know, they know exactly who they are. They don't, don't they don't hide or or deny or confuse their their Judaism, you know. And, and and of course, I think they're imparting that to their children, in other words, our grandchildren. So that's my, if there is an achievement, that's number one achievement. That that my progeny uh, is going to stay jewish and are jewish and and even if they wanted to take the jew out of them i don't think they could so so that's one thing um uh, professionally my how did my judaism um well okay for one thing uh, we spent a year in israel on my sabbatical which i don't think i would have done if i weren't jewish um and uh, that was a wonderful time for our children, mostly even better than for us, because they just blended right in, and you know, they they went to their uh, respective elementary and and uh, and kindergarten schools, and came back speaking perfect uh, perfect uh, Sabra Hebrew and
0: Wow, and, you know,
1: yes, it was amazing. That's the
0: dream. Yeah. Spend the year.
1: So that so that um, that certainly affected. Um, and I began some research at the Weizmann Institute that continued after I came back, and um, I met some very, uh, very able, you know, talented young people in Israel. And I made sure that I had a grant uh, uh, to, that would allow me to bring foreign foreign fellows to to be trained in, in my in my labs and in in my department. And so I did that, and um, we established essentially the beginnings of, of the um, with the subspecialty of pediatrics that has to do with, uh, with gastroenterology and liver disease and nutrition, that was not available in in in, um, in Israel when I was there uh, on you know, sabbatical, and that was of course more clinical, and I was doing basic research at the Weitzman. But yeah. when I came back, I brought over three um very talented um young uh israelis and trained them uh, in a, in the program that i ran at ucsf um and trained them in in the subspecialty of pediatric gastroenterology and they went back and they founded the the that subspecialty
0: i've heard you by the way being referred to as the father of pediatric gastroenterology
1: i <laughs> have uh, yeah, that well, that just happened because, by sheer coincidence, when I came here to San Francisco, um, and it was because I was doing research at Harvard that had nothing to do with clinical work, had to do with how sea sea urchins develop embryo embryologically, and had to do with um, you know regeneration of the liver and all kinds of stuff like that, nothing to do with clinical. But um, the chief of the uh, just they just appointed. A lot of scientists at the time uh, who wanted to convert the school into a research center rather than a you know, more than like an educational center. Mm. So a guy like me was very, you know, they wanted for someone like who could do research and was trained in clinical pediatrics and, you know, knew, knew how to lay hands on a patient on the one hand, but on the other hand knew how to how to kill rats. <laughs> So, so therefore they hired me and they allowed me to develop uh what they didn't have and and they didn't have anything to do with what i was interested in which was liver and um and then they, with the liver came the hollow organ you know the, the the intestine and um that's the solid organ is the liver and the hollow organ is the intestine and so i inherited that and i began to big developed uh, a training program for that because I needed help. Yeah, and um, I'll just ignore that. So, so basically,
0: we will ignore it together.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it turned out that um, that this was the very first pediatric gastroenterology program in the country. It just turned out that way because um, pretty soon, as soon as you announced that you had someone specialized in these problems, there was a flood of referrals from pediatricians from the area who had these babies with chronic diarrhea or 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 kids who had uh, uh, you know Crohn's disease or whatever. You know they they didn't know what to do with them, so they suddenly had an open gate for for them. And uh, we brought them in. And, and of course, um, we started to do procedures. You know, procedures means endoscopies and, and needle biopsies and all these kinds of procedures. Wow. And once you do that, you are economically viable. Because the way the, our system here, the healthcare system works.
0: Yeah, it seems they, they can charge for that.
1: They can, yeah, anything to do with surgery, with invading your body. Uh, is is uh, is uh, seen as um, requiring much higher skills than, than what they call cognitive skills. You know, listening mm. to the patient and and making a diagnosis from the story and so on, that kind of thing.
0: The the inside the inside is more important than the outside.
1: <laughs> well, the invisible is more important than the visible. Yeah.
0: Oh, uh, now now you're getting into God. Maybe that's our ne- Maybe that's our next topic.
1: So the <laughs> bottom line here is that, um, yeah, that was, you mentioned uh, the father of, you know, this was just pure chance that I was in the right spot at the right time and, and there was a need and I've tried to fill it and by filling that need, it turned out the need was a very large sector of the pediatric patient's population and now they're doing all these procedures. So so I think they're the third most lucrative subspecialty after wow. cardiology and neonatology, you know, all the newborn babies with problems. And wow. after that, you get the intensive the pediatric intensive care unit, which is mostly cardiology. And uh, and then it's us, gastroenterology with all the needle biopsies and, and endoscopies and so on. So now uh, it's a it's a highly established and recognized specialty, but fifty what is it now? Fifty one years ago, it didn't exist, and we started it. So that's that's the story.
0: Well, you're you're uh, you're a mensch uh, because more than more than once you've helped people in the community who had questions on these subjects with themselves or their kids. So uh, you being available uh, means uh, it it uh, stayed in your stomach. It didn't get to your head. <laughs> <laughs> You're, You're welcome. The only one in the world
1: that <laughs>
0: compliment. Yeah, you know, listen, I tried off the cuff over here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um I just uh uh we were we were together part of a class on Friday that was discussing um Spinoza and uh and uh, Jewish philosophy. And when you mentioned the idea of the unseen, um it brought me to that because Spinoza is essentially um, the the most famous pre-modern philosopher, uh, especially in regards to like breaking the mythology around God in the Bible and uh and 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 about you know attributing to God at best to nature and thus thrusting off all the yokes of like being chosen people or divine uh, transmission, and and it's really the building blocks for for modern and postmodern uh philosophy and thought and and I and I have my question that I didn't get to really ask at the class that I want to ask you, because um, I like that, um, that you you've you, you on the one hand have this uh, tethered connection to Judaism and to and to and to and to the Torah and to the Bible, but also like, you know, uh, remain uh uh, untethered uh, as well to the like God in in the sense that you can you can you know uh, you don't have to be uh, dog, you're not dogmatic about anything you're you're extremely tied to reason and rationale and uh, you don't always accept being an atheist but but you 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 know you, you sometimes do sometimes don't you know um, so okay I hear you no judgment here my question is. Is like let's say um, um, Spinoza, you know, his wish uh, becomes that that Judaism accepts him as the new leader, Moses and Maimonides, and we're all like, okay, we're going to follow him. Does Judaism still exist? In other words, if we stop tethering the Torah to God, and if we accept those deep, deep hypotheses, do we exist or do we cease to exist? They just, uh, because from my vantage point, we cease to exist immediately or within a generation or two, there are no more Jews.
1: Okay. First of all, I think we're facing it anyway. This, this problem of disappearing within two generations. Okay. I think that's clearly what's happening. If you look at the demographics, there's no way around it. Well, the only thing that will be left in, say, in 50 years, according to those statistics, speaking of science and facts, um, according to those statistics, the only thing that will be left that's recognizably Judaic is the Orthodox community. And the Orthodox community, with its high birth rate, and its very, very high rate of marrying into the tribe, if you know what I mean, Yep. Will uh, probably grow to probably around a million. Uh, right now, it's a little more than five hundred and fifty thousand. Um, so it'll probably double within the next uh, two generations. And um, and what will happen is the rest of what's called Jews, Reform, or or uh, Reconstruction, or whatever you want to call them, um, will will disappear within two generations. And um, and so, you, you know, you'll come down from, what is it now, five and a half to six million Jews, uh, in the latest census, around six
0: million Jews. Right, in the United States, uh, or diaspora.
1: Only talking about the United States. Yeah, they, yeah. Each, each country is different. Each, each place is different. But the United States and Canada, I guess, and you can lump those two, um, will probably dwindle down to less than a million Jews um, outside of the million that, that is the Orthodox. So, uh, you know, it'll dwindle down to about 2 million, 1 million of which one half of which will still continue to say, Oh, my grandfather was Jewish. You know, like they talk about, uh, uh, you know, uh, where they came from in Russia. You know, they always talk about, oh, my grandfather was from Belarus or something, you know, and they vaguely recall some town or maybe they don't, you know, that, and but but they sort of look back at that. Uh, and, and that way, uh, I think it will be, uh, that'll happen with most Jews. And I always think, you know, back into Jewish history because nothing that is happening and will happen has, hasn't happened before in some uh, fashion or another. I mentioned the expulsion from from Spain. I I, uh, I, I mentioned um, you know the uh, sod business. The anyway the the um, uh, in 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 Jewish history the, the significant marker is the disappearance of the ten tribes. I mean you know you had northern well documented northern country called Israel. And it was a fa- it was invaded by a, by a superior power.
0: Right, named, Assyrians. Yep.
1: Yes, and and defeated, and then the whole damn country evaporated. I mean, ten tribes of the twelve disappeared, and nobody to this day knows where the hell they went and where they were, and what happened. In fact, is that the Assyrians had a policy of absorbing and basically assimilating all of their conquered peoples. That was their policy. That was simply, instead of killing them or expelling them, they simply made homes for them in uh, other parts of their of their empire. And they opened up the gates for them to become assimilated. And there was strong impetus, a strong, um, what should I say, attraction to um, basically giving up their, their ancestral beliefs and, and taking on the beliefs, uh, the gods, if you will, of, of, uh, of the Assyrians. And within two generations, they simply disappeared. And so that's the example that I have fear of um, will happen not because of persecution or deportation, but simply for the opposite reason, that the, the, uh, the attraction of assimilation is is in in the place of us a, a weak identity weak a weak sense of belonging to this special tribe um will be overcome very easily by the attractions of assimilation when you feel you're you're more like them than like us there's no us anymore there's right them. and and all the all the phrases, you know, tikkun Olam, for example, tikkun Olam calls for universality. You know, George Krefsky, speaking of our group. Yes. George Krefsky, you'll see what the future in America is going to be. Because he's universalizing everything. You know, he belongs to an organization that... Um, feels that um, what we need to do is, been, is be nice to the Arabs and it's all our fault. And if we weren't nice to the Arabs, um, if we were nicer to the Arabs, um, you know, the things would have worked out and everybody would have been
0: dancing. See, see, George is, is who I love dearly. You know, him being a part of something is already a step up because he's saying, like, look, I, I, I have these sentiments. I believe in uh, universality. So I work for that. Most young people believe in a universality and are not part of anything at all. So they they don't realize how even their belief in universality isn't rooted in any action-oriented uh, possibility. So it's already, that's the second generation. Their children have even less of a chance to, to find the pathway. Um, you know, um, whereas that's, I feel like at least subconsciously consciously, a lot of religious Jews that I came from, they, they don't feel connected as much to their non-religious counterparts because they're like, look, you guys are not looking to be Jewish, you're looking to be American, you're looking to be part of the world. Your Judaism is an afterthought. For us, for us, our identities, we're Jewish Americans. We're not American Jews. So because so because of that, although, like for example, the Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Schneerson, was yeah. was, was he called America a kingdom of kindness. He said, "You know, he he gave back to the country. He worked for the, the in the Brooklyn Navy Yard during World War II because he believed." He said, "He said no nation has ever been founded on precepts of kindness. This is not. That's not a thing, you know. He's like, even if you don't like what's going on in America, it was built on inalienable rights. Whether it was whether it happened fully, whether they listened yeah. to it, but that concept alone." Is 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 beautiful, and that's what motivated uh, um, um, his organization and us to to like that's don't great. don't give up on American Jews, like that's keep great. building bridges and keep creating opportunities for learning and spirituality and Jewish identity.
1: That's great because you, you bring me back to my point when I first came to North America about feeling that sense, what he called the sense of kindness. Yes, and I got into mercy and justice and. Because of that, because kindness is the mercy part, you know, it's, it's the it's identifying with with the other, you know, that the,
0: the balance of kindness and 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 uh, and justice is mercy. That's the balance. Yes. Right. Uh, in Kabbalah terms, it's. <laughs> I,
1: oh, I, David. Yeah, I, I need to talk to you a little later. I'm in the middle of a Zoom session. OK. All right. Good. So, so, but let's get back to Spinoza for a minute. First. Yes. Second. That was a complete, this is too bad. You know, Ernie is turning into this aged, aged, uh, the, you know, dogma, dogmatist. And, and all of a sudden he's sort of imposing, uh, you know, uh, uh, why should we have even mentioned Spinoza in the Parsha? I mean, that has nothing to do with it, you know, but don't worry.
0: Right. at Right. After the session, Ernie messaged me, a deeply Hasidic message wanting to know the mysticism behind the acacia wood used in the Mishkan. So, so although, you know, uh, he, it's the, dogma didn't totally take him over. Uh, you know.
1: <laughs> but that, that too is sort of a impertinent question. I mean, you know, the basic point is not uh, acacia and uh, and all this stuff you know the all the details and that that, that that's not relevant what's relevant is that uh, that they were preparing a place for God to be present at all times during their long journey in, in you know in how God reserved um, an innermost place for the ten tablets for the for the Ten Commandments as as being within the ark and the amazing fact that there is nothing there, which means there is everything there. I mean, you know, it's it, it, it get, getting into the, the the wood really upsets me. You know, it, it, it,
0: but it, but but so you know, uh, young people today, when they hear acacia wood, they think of properties in it called DMT and psych and psychedelic elements, and are like, oh my goodness, that is fantastic. That the Jewish Mishkan didn't have some frankincense and some cannabis, it also had DMT in acacia wood. So it makes Makes it relevant to them on some level, I should, I should. and and in and in Hasidic uh, philosophy, acacia wood called in Hebrew shittim, mm-hmm. means means folly, which which can which is ambiguous. Meaning it could be there's folly as in I'm acting silly and I should be acting you know f- focused, but then there's also holy folly where I. I could be focused and say that uh, I don't have to persevere because the knife is near my neck. And instead, I'm saying, no, I'm going to be happy and joyful and live and live to the fullest, even though circumstances seem dire. So there is a duality just by mentioning the wood. That is fantastic. You know how I like to take one word and turn a whole uh, drusha on it. Yeah.
1: Well, so you picked Acacia, and I don't know why Ernie picked Acacia. Well, obviously because he came across a reference uh, to rabbis and talking about it and, and uh, all kinds of, you know, symbolic, uh, symbolic values uh, that you just explained. I and mean, why would he call you about it? Because he doesn't know anything about it. Um, what I'm saying is that I don't think that it's his place to start um, putting in his, like the Socrates, uh, sorry, the... Spinoza Spinoza stuff you know I mean it really didn't belong there I mean what 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 was the connection between the the partial of the you know there was an avoidance mechanism to get away from the partial which was just all these instructions. About you know how to make the mishkan and what colors and what you know all the, all the carpentry and he wanted to get away from that and he and somebody mentioned Spinoza he doesn't know anything but Spinoza either but,
0: but but this is but this is a, a an ongoing issue where you where you speak to quote enlightened and very sophisticated people about Torah and and it's and it's whitewashed by. Uh, philosophy and by and by uh, and by what's what they're calling rational theory and that it that that there's that they they can't find God within reason and they can't find you know um, the Torah within like it, it has to be an invention and 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 uh, and I say that uh, the there's no immortality to that there's only f- f- finitude finiteness That's and that and and that
1: what does Spinoza have to do with the Parsha nothing
0: the and parsha- it's by-
1: very, very straight and very detail, amazingly detailed in how to construct a a tent, a tent that they can that they can put their their their, their holy of holies in and carry along along in the desert. That's really what the parsha is about. And then dragging a, a philosopher like Spinoza into it is a, a diversion, is a, is a maneuver not to have to address that parsha. That's that
0: Michael. You are you are Hashem's atheists, okay? You are God's atheist. He needs you. You're defending. You're defending the position.
1: Let me finish with Spinoza. Let me just say. okay. Spinoza was excommunicated as a, at a particular time in Jewish history. As again, you can't decontextualize it. They right. were mostly, um, They're mostly Moranos. They're mostly you know Portuguese and Spanish Jews who were welcome to Amsterdam because they offered certain skills and certain mercantile, uh, you you know, opportunities. And and they were were at least tolerated. But they were tenuous about their position. And, you know, uh, along came a 23-year-old guy who had the impertinence to publish a tractatus, you know, a a treatise, a, a philosophical treatise, which challenged such things as who wrote the Torah? okay? Fine, so that would be something that would be worthy of of excommunication because you're trying to separate Moses from God and you're Mm. trying to deny that that connection. And of course, what follows, if you follow the philosophy, is that you're not the chosen people, You're, Mm. you're just any other people. And that, of course, is uh, seen as an assimilationist assimilationist kind of uh, process. And of course, the rabbis also have to guard against that. They're trying to protect the community from assimilation. And, and here is a guy who basically says, oh, you know, the whole Torah thing is was written by Moses and, and uh, there was no possibility of being an exceptional thing because if anybody looks at the Torah, and sees the record of the Israelites, and they can see that, if anything, they misbehaved worse than even the Egyptians. But, Hmm. but, and of course, you probably know some of my interpretations of the Torah. I, I do. Talking about the revolts of the of the Israelites against Moses and against God, you know all these things that are well recorded in in the text, which is to me the fascinating thing that they didn't whitewash anything. They really reported it in a way it must have happened. Because if it was just a political uh, kind of like those guys believe, you know that it was like reform, like like or like um, like what's an Aaron and um, at Zarin Zarin. Uh, believes you know that it's uh, the text is the pretext for the context I guess is the way (laughs) so so basically the thing about Spinoza is that he was a deep thinker and so what he did is he separated the act of religion the act of faith the act of believing in a transcendental being separated it from anything to do with nature in other words with what science does, you know, with, with products of nature. Okay. He separated the two. He did not say that God doesn't exist. You know, he didn't deny the existence of God. He simply said that the experience of religion, of, a of faith, of, of believing in a, in a transcendental being was a matter of hope and fear. That's mm. how he put it, all right? And so that he didn't deny it. He just said it was a separate sphere. Okay. And therefore, it freed us, according to, to, to Spinoza, to study the Torah like it was a product of, hum, of a human mind, of human hands, and, and from the point of view of an objective human observer, the way he said you would, uh, you would examine any other natural phenomena like astronomy, looking at the stars, and you know, trying to figure out how things work. And that that that's the way we should approach. And and you may recall, I I took some time and I read them three passages from the parts that uh, uh, Zarin pro- provided for as examples of Spinoza's work. I wrote, I, I I read three passages which emphasize that the way to study the Torah is to go back to the text and really study what the text is saying and not all these speculations and, and comments because they are not the text. And that's wow. exactly what I've been saying for, what is it? 40 years now? More yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> text Study the text. All the answers are in the text. Honor the text. Take it seriously, respect it. And because that's what we're studying. That's what we've got. And that essentially is what Spinoza was saying. Once you accept the idea that 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 the Torah is a natural a part of nature, part of natural the natural world. Then the same approaches that you would take to studying uh, the stars or to studying how how a plant more, uh, grows and or anything else in nature, you 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 apply the same principles. And of course, the first thing is read it as it is and don't manufacture things that aren't in it. But because it'll distract you. And, and it'll lead, mislead you, focus on what the text is actually saying and figure it out the way you would figure out any mathematical problem or any natural phenomenon. That's what the core of Spinoza is. It not that- deny the existence of God, but he separated those two things. And for that, I think he was correctly excommunicated because that kind of thinking was very dangerous at that time to the to the Jewish, basically the the Sfardi community in 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 Holland at that time in the 17th century.
0: Yeah, the, I think you're you're saying some fascinating things. Especially, it's not coming from some religious perspective. It's coming from a very deep like. You until you learn to analyze the text of our heritage, yeah. it, you're you're going to miss a large part of what this experience is really about. Our ancestors were documenting this in a way that you, there would be no. We weren't trying to have any secrets. We weren't trying to, to hide anything. On the contrary, we wanted, you know, when I, the first year I came to San Francisco, I uh, I got to introduce Rabbi, Ad, the great Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz of blessed memory, just passed away last year yes. to a crowd of like 600 people at the JCC. And uh, and uh, after he gave his lecture, somebody, you know, was so inspired and they jumped up and they said, Rabbi, how do I connect to God? And he said. And he said, uh, drop LSD. And there was like, and, and it's just like, there was like a total quiet, you know, hush over the crowd. They were not expecting this sage-like rabbi. And when it was really quiet, he said, the way to connect to God is to read his text. You read the text, you'll get an understanding of what's happening over here. So, so um, even, even that, I will say, yeah, uh, there is a book here called Maimonides, Spinoza, and Us. And it's, yes. and it, and it talks about these, these ideas, um, as, as, uh, as like, and it's basically Is this a current, a, a recent book or no, I don't think so. I, I, somebody gave it to me as a gift many years ago in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, and, uh, yes,
1: because Spinoza did, specifically focused on Maimonides because Maimonides was, the, was the other scientific thinker.
0: Correct. And- correct.
1: Yes.
0: And so but- so his the idea of the book is similar to yours. It's just like he's like, he's with you up until a certain point, yeah. and then Spinoza jumps off the deep end. Like, but a lot of the foundational philosophical ideas that people have in general in this world are sound. But it does but but then there's the next level of well, transmission, tradition, roots, success. And I think the most important thing is. There's a certain reliability to to understanding your Jewish identity, to navigate the difficulties of your time. And maybe this is how we should end. I do think that when a person learns the text and connects to the tradition and is rooted in it, they can handle the the anti-Semitism of their time. They will not be part of the lost tribe. There you go. They will never get lost. They will never get lost.
1: Yes, they'll never get lost. That's right. Okay. Wow. Well,
0: well, I, I think I think, uh, I, think um, uh, I think we we've given some pe- people things to think about uh, you more than me. <laughs> and uh, and I just want to thank you for uh, being my friend and uh, and being an asset to the community and contributing and always having so much uh, zest for life. We should all be as vibrant as you are.
1: No, listen, you're you're there. You're the just turning 40. You're, you're just opening the door. That's what you're doing. You're coming into this splendid room. And you're going to, you know, do wonderful things in it. Yeah, I know it. I know it.
0: But thank uh, you. But no. Thank you.
1: I, I I don't know how you do it, frankly. But,
0: uh, <laughs> that's, another, uh, that's for a, That's a different conversation. The
1: next time we we do it, we can talk about some of uh, some of the differences we have. Let's say about interpreting the text. And since we're talking about the text. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's fascinating. I think if you read it in a in a kind of um, at arm's length, without preconceived notions, without the idea, uh, you know, that everything is perfused by holiness, um, and you uh, you just see what what they wrote, and it's just so unbelievably realistic and factual and 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 in 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 historic in a sense that there's no question that this was not just a myth uh, a myth making kind of collection of fairy tales but 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 actually had to have basis and historic facts because there's no way around it and uh and you know I'd love to sit there with you for a couple of hours and and just go through some of some of these stories that some of these aspects that have been under, under underrepresented or or maybe deliberately uh, minimized by by generations of rabbis who inherited from each other a way of looking at the torah that deviates i think in some very essential mm. ways from what the text is trying to tell you
0: all right well we got our follow up then well, uh, so thank you for joining and, uh, and, uh, thank you all for tuning in and
1: g- g- happy birthday. Thank you. And, and uh, maybe we'll, uh, I'll be, it, it's March the 17th, right? Uh,
0: my, my Hebrew birthday is going to fall out on March 17th. Yeah.
1: Okay. So uh, we have about a month exact, almost uh, exactly a little more than a month to contemplate, um, and to, uh, wish you the best, uh, for the next. Thank you. Okay.
0: Thank you. Okay, stay Well, stay to
1: yourself. Gesund <laughs> and stark.
0: Gesund and stark. No doubt.
1: Okay. Okay. <laughs>